This is the news from the Lord. Hello, America. This is Jeffrey Lord with another edition of the Did He Really Just Say That? The Word of the Lord with Jeffrey Lord. 60 years, 60 years. That is amazing. For those old enough to remember that horrific day in American history, November 22nd, 1963, and I am old enough, the arrival of the 60-year marker since the assassination of President John F. Kennedy has opened the flood of memories, along with the inevitable passage of time, providing more insight into the legacy of JFK himself. But first, by now you've all heard me talk about my pillow, and now our friend Mike Lindell has done it again by introducing his new My Slippers. Mike has taken over two years to develop the slippers. They're designed to be worn indoors and outdoors all day long, and I do wear them that way. They're made with My Pillow foam and impact gel to help prevent fatigue, and they're made with quality leather suede. For a limited time, Mike is offering 40% off his new My Slippers. The My Slippers are so comfortable that you will want to get some for the whole family. So go to MyPillow.com and click on the radio listener square and use promo code Jeff. You will also get deep discounts on all MyPillow products, including those fabulous Giza Dream bed sheets, the MyPillow mattress topper, and MyPillow towel sets. Or call 800-606-1043 and use promo code Jeff. <clears throat> now, 60 years ago, on November 22, 1963, I was a 7th grade junior high schooler living with my parents in Northampton, Massachusetts. School got out at 2.30 in the afternoon with kids heading out of the back doors that emptied onto a playground and from there out to another playground behind an adjacent grammar school and then hence to the streets and on home. But out of the blue, there was something going on. Instead of the usual hubbub that was the normal from dozens and dozens of early teenagers, all was strangely quiet, with kids suddenly talking quietly, gathering in clusters. The reason was quickly clear. Word was spreading that President John F. Kennedy had been shot to death in Dallas, Texas, while he was riding in a motorcade. On CBS TV, Anchor Walter Cronkite broke into a soap opera, of all things, to announce that President Kennedy had been assassinated. From Dallas, Texas, the flash, apparently official, President Kennedy died at 1 p.m. Central Standard Time, 2 o'clock Eastern Standard Time, some 38 minutes ago. Vice President Lyndon Johnson <clears throat> has left the hospital in uh, Dallas, but we do not know uh, to where he has proceeded. Uh, presumably, he will be taking the oath of office shortly and become uh, the 36th President of the United States. Every kid on that playground was stunned. Some started to cry. I couldn't believe what I was hearing. A history buff already, I knew enough to know that the last time a president William McKinley, that would be, was assassinated, was in 1901, a full 62 years earlier. Instead of going home, 
I went to the nearby campus of Smith College, the famous women's college. My mother worked there as the executive assistant to the college's English and history departments. Clearly, the word had reached there as well. My mother was standing outside her office talking with a couple professors. Everyone was appalled. I was already interested in politics. My parents were staunch Republicans. Dad had served in the city council seat once held by a young future president, Calvin Coolidge. He had also been the Republican city committee chair. Mom had served as chair of the Hampshire County Republican Women. Between the two of them, I had been to lots of city council meetings, not to mention GOP Lincoln Day dinners and state Republican conventions where they served as delegates. Already in my young life, I had met both a governor and a senator from Massachusetts, the latter being Republican Senator Leverett Saltonstall. In his capacity as a town elder, Dad was one of several adults asked to serve as chaperones for the senior class of Northampton High School on the traditional class trip to Washington. In 1958, even though a Republican, Dad was, or perhaps because he was a Republican, Dad was invited to have coffee in the Senate dining room with then-Senator John F. Kennedy. They had a great conversation about local, state, and national politics. To Dad's eternal amusement, when the bill for the two coffees arrived, JFK had no cash on him, and Dad had to pay the bill. Now, walking home from seeing Mom, I passed all kinds of people on the streets of Northampton, quite a number of them sobbing openly. Waiting at one corner for traffic to clear so I could cross onto our street, I found I was suddenly making a resolution to myself. Then and there, I resolved to get involved in politics myself and ASAP, which is to say it was my young kid's way of carrying on what quickly was being called the Kennedy legacy. Once home, I turned on the black and white Zenith television that was in the living room. Walter Cronkite was still on the air. For four days, starting right then and there, Americans via television were plunged into something never before seen, a simultaneously nationally communal experience of a major historical event. There were only three television networks at the time, ABC, CBS, and NBC. There was no such thing as cable TV. Yet for those days from Friday afternoon through Monday, each of the three networks were zeroed in on the same thing, the coverage of JFK's assassination. In today's world, the intensity and variety of cable news is there to connect Americans to unfolding events, whatever they may be. But this experience was brand new in 1963. The rest of Friday, the coverage was about JFK's body being returned to Washington on Air Force One. It was, it was riveting. The plane landed at Andrews Air Force Base. A cargo carrier made its way to a side door of the plane, where the casket was to be loaded. Greeting the plane when it arrived with JFK's brother and closest confidant, brother and Attorney General Robert F. Kennedy. RFK had bounded up the stairs into the plane, making his way to the back of the plane where the casket was resting, resting next to the stunned and already ever-vigilant First Lady Jackie Kennedy. The two stepped onto the cargo carrier with the casket, and as it was lowered to the ground in a waiting hearse, Americans were further shocked to see Jackie Kennedy. We were told, this being black and white television, that her suit was pink, with dark colors for the collars and cuffs. But quite unmistakably, there was something else. It was smeared with her husband's blood all over her. 
offered the chance for clean clothes on the plane ride back. They had been overnight in Texas, so there were clean clothes available. Mrs. Kennedy, it was later revealed, had declined because she wanted the country to see what had been done to her husband. With the late president's casket and family gone, only then did the country see the new president, the now former vice president, Lyndon Johnson. An unfamiliar sight, I must say, at that point. Vice presidents never getting much attention in the day. LBJ gravely made a statement to the waiting microphones, his Texas accent quite distinct, and but and then he took no questions, and then he too was out of there, returning not to the White House, but his own Washington residence. There was no official house for vice presidents in the day, so they were on their own with their own private residence. In fact, he wouldn't move into the White House until Mrs. Kennedy uh, had gotten things together to move she and their two children, the Kennedy children, out. Uh, he was in no hurry. Eventually, JFK was returned to the White House. His now flag-covered casket escorted to the East Room to begin a three-day national mourning. Always a student of history, Jackie Kennedy had produced for her, his, for had produced for her the historical records of the services for the assassinated President Abraham Lincoln. Americans were told that while updating them for the mid-20th century, JFK's service would borrow heavily from Lincoln's. The TV coverage was already relentless and everywhere, no matter where you turned the dial. Saturday was prominent American visitors going to the White House to pay their respects. Sunday was the casket's trip to Lyon State in the Capitol with a televised funeral service. As if all this wasn't horrific enough, the networks covered live the transfer of accused assassin Lee Harvey Oswald from one jail to another in the city. Suddenly, as Oswald appeared on the screen, handcuffed and escorted by two police officers in a crowded basement of this jail, Americans saw a man wearing a black hat, his back to camera, quickly identified later that day as one Jack Ruby, run right up to Oswald out of the blue, thrust the gun at his stomach, and pulled the trigger. Oswald screamed. Loaded into an ambulance, he was shortly a dead man. Monday was the final trip for JFK, the casket on a horse-drawn caisson. The horse, a gleaming black horse known as Black Jack, had empty boots in its saddle stirrups, military tradition having them face backwards as a tribute to a fallen warrior. Monday was the funeral at St. Patrick's at St. Matthew's Cathedral, not far from the White House. The casket was accompanied by the Kennedy family and all manner of world leaders, all on foot, marching from the White House to St. Matthew's. Most visible in this collection of world leaders was the towering figure of the uniformed French president, General Charles de Gaulle. Finally, the Monday coverage closed as Mrs. Kennedy lit what then and still today is known as the Eternal Flame at JFK's gravesite in Arlington National Cemetery. What came next and continues to this day was the ongoing evolution of what quickly became known as the quote-unquote Kennedy legacy. Over time, volumes of books on JFK would appear. His senior staffers, Counselor Ted Sorensen, Special Assistants Arthur Schlesinger Jr., Ken O'Donnell, Dave Powers, and Press Secretary Pierre Salinger and others, all put out memoirs of JFK's career and time in the White House. And they weren't alone. 
My teenage self would spend years snapping up JFK books as soon as they were released. Over time in later years, I would become a Reaganized conservative. Ronald Reagan in 1960 was still a Democrat and chaired in 1960 Democrats for Nixon. But by two years later, he was now a Republican, his own political career weighing weighing anchor and sailing him eventually into the White House. And eventually I would be in that White House working for President Reagan with a portrait of JFK on my office wall. Because JFK was unable to raise funds for his own presidential library, when he was asked by JFK's, when President Reagan was asked by JFK's children, Caroline and John Jr. to help, Reagan instantly signed up. In 1985, the Republican president appeared at the home of JFK's brother, Senator Ted Kennedy, to raise money for the library. Among other things, Reagan noted this of members of his own staff, like myself, quote, it is a matter of pride to me that so many men and women who were inspired by his bracing vision and moved by his call to ask not serve now in the White House doing the business of government. <clears throat> but I must con- <clears throat> excuse me, but I must confess, President Reagan went on, that ever since Caroline and John came by, I have found myself thinking not so much about the John F. Kennedy Library as about the man himself and what his life meant to our country and our times, particularly to the history of this century. And when he died, when that comet disappeared over the continent, a whole nation grieved and would not forget. A tailor in New York put up a sign on the door, closed because of a death in the family. That sadness was not confined to us. They cried the rain down that night, said a journalist in Europe. They put his picture up in huts in Brazil and tents in the Congo, in offices in Dublin and Warsaw. That was some of what he did for his country. For when they honored him, they were honoring someone essentially quintessently American, completely American. When they honored John Kennedy, they honored the nation whose virtues, genius, and contradictions he so fully reflected. Many men are great, but few capture the imagination and the spirit of the times. The ones who do are unforgettable. Four administrations have passed since John Kennedy's death, said President Reagan then. Five presidents have occupied the Oval Office, and I feel sure that each of them thought of John Kennedy now and then and his thousand days in the White House, unquote. Well, today, in 2023, 60 years later, 10 presidential administrations have passed since JFK's death, with Joe Biden being number 11. As usual, as unreal, rather, as it seems to this one-time seventh grader in Northampton, Massachusetts, this November 22nd marks 60 full years since that dark day in Dallas. The world has changed, or has it? But hopefully young Americans who read history will continue to be inspired as I was by JFK and get involved themselves. Thanks for listening. Stop by my website, thejeffreylord.com. See you next time. And, oh yes, happy Thanksgiving. Thanksgiving.